Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with David Frum. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas for The Hub. In Conversation with David Frum is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for more great insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's conversation, we'll discuss the reaction within Canada to Hamas's devastating terrorist attacks in Israel, what it has exposed about the tests and possible limits of our pluralism, and the need to reckon with anti-Semitism in our society. David, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you. We're speaking on October 13th, 2023. On October 7th, 2022, just over one year ago, you and I spoke about anti-Semitism in Canada and other Western countries. You spoke about what you call the, quote, rising level of harassment, suspicion, and accusation in Canada, unquote, and more virulent forms of anti-Semitism elsewhere. Twelve months later, it's clear that you were right, and those of us who heard what you said, maybe even registered it, but didn't do anything about it, were wrong. Talk about the expressions of anti-Semitism that we've seen on display in major cities across the world, including here in Canada. Have they surprised you at all? The expressions have not surprised me. And the reaction of most people has been very heartening. But there have been real gaps. Um, in the United States, the worst have been at the universities. Uh, in Canada, the, the worst have been with, unfortunately, levels of government and especially local government. Um, I don't want to single anybody out. But I, here's my general reaction to these demonstrations. If the Western world and Canada in particular, if we lived in a culture of maximum freedom speech up to the limits of the unbearable, then you would say, well, of course, displaying Hamas, shouting Hamas slogans a week after a week after a Hamas outrage, the single greatest atrocity against Jewish people since the Holocaust. You know, that's just that that goes along with all the other outrageous things that have to be put up with as the price of a free society. If that's if that was the rule then that would be a normal reaction. In fact, we live in a time of enormous social, cultural, and even legal policing of speech. And in Canada, much more than in the United States. So that if I'm not going to say here a list of the once uncontroversial things that I can't say, uh, but you can all conjure them to mind. There are a lot of things you can conjure to mind that are uh, things that you, that are reasonable things to th say and think. Um, but we've talked about one, uh, which is uh, to doubt the claims that have been made about mass graves at Canadian residential schools. Now, that is a socially intolerable thing to say. There, if you were to say it, print, you couldn't get it printed in a major Canadian publication, pro at least until very recently. And uh, it might end. There are people in Ottawa who want to make it a legal offense to say such a thing. So we do not have free speech up to the limit of the unbearable. We have a culture of preferred speech, uh, where certain things that are, that are true cannot be said, and other things that are false must be said. Um, so. The question that we're, you have to confront when you confront a Hamas rally is, how did this get into the category of preferred speech? 
Why is this socially and legally, uh, never mind legally, why is this socially and culturally permissible? Why do people feel that it's something that they shouldn't criticize when other things are not? How did that happen? And I don't think there's a way of telling that story that doesn't implicate the feeling that Jews occupy uh, the, the two, they're, they're um, I mean, there are two bad places to be in the culture of North American speech. On the one hand, that certain groups that are perceived to have certain privileges are subject to criticism that is not acceptable to other groups. On the other hand, the, those other groups pay for it because they genuinely experience discrimination and harassment. And so, um, so there's a trade-off that, yes, you know, cishet white males are, you know, can be criticized more than other people. But on the other hand, they're felt to be exempt from certain kinds of discrimination. And other groups that are protected from criticism, at least are Jews occupy that they are exposed to not only harassment, but outright violence on a higher scale than any other identifiable subculture in Western societies. Uh, every study of, of hate incident shows that Jews are the single most targeted group, followed, followed, of course, by gays and lesbians. Meanwhile, so they get all they get all the detriments of actually being singled out. Meanwhile, they are also non-preferred categories of protection. They, you can say about them all kinds of outrageous things that you can't say about other people. And that is coming home to roost. And I think the question here is, we have created and the taxpayers fund an enormous industry of speech surveillance, both in the public sector and in the university sector. What do all these DEI people do for a living? Uh, what do they do? And the answer is they, 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 they right now, what are they doing this week? The answer is this week. This week, they're protecting violent, murderous, anti-Semitic speech. That's what they do for a living. And I think maybe we don't need them. As we discussed in last year's conversation, and you alluded to it there, David, universities have been at the center of these issues over the past week. Can you help me understand that? What is it about the university culture that has turned into fertile soil for anti-Semitism? I think it's a combination of two things. One is that this anti-Semitism comes from an ideological space uh, that is highly overrepresented in the academy. So the set of ideas that predispose, you're more likely to find them in the academy than you are, say, in the military or in a major corporation. Second, universities are run, not in every case, but in most cases, by spineless cowards. Um, and so even though the, the, the probably the, your typical university president and probably your typical provost and dean don't approve of this kind of behavior, but they're not going to stick their necks out to stop it because they're they're. Spineless and cowardly. Now, there have been signal exceptions. Uh, we saw Ben Sass at the University of Florida issue a very forceful statement, and there have been other, other places as well. But mostly university press, and they will rationalize this as protecting the institution, but they're really protecting themselves because the institution will be fine. You know, if your institution, if you're leading Columbia University, it'll do just fine, whoever is president. So your personal career is not indispensable to the success of the institution, but it's very easy for the person to do the weak thing and make it an act of generosity, not, not a protection toward themselves, but an act of generosity toward the institution. And I think we see a lot of that on Canadian college campuses, where these are government-funded entities. They'll, they'll, they'll flourish or not but by larger social forces. But the person in charge, his or her first concern is keeping out of trouble for him or herself. Yeah. And I would just say in parentheses to a point you made earlier, you know, one line of argument may be that these university institutions have committed themselves to a, a maximalist culture of speech. Um, but that, of course, is not the case. We published an article today by a young writer named Jonah Davids, which pointed out the inherent hypocrisy in 
instances where universities have taken on institutional positions and and, and in, in the past week or so uh, where they've suddenly done otherwise. Every university in Canada practices compelled speech. There are things you must say, whether you believe them or not. You, when you have a meeting, you must begin with a land acknowledgement. Yes. Even if you think that that is nonsense. And even if you think that the particular historical claims within the land acknowledgement are lies, you must say it. And so there, not only is there not a culture of maximum free speech, not only is there a culture of, of police speech, there's a culture in Canada of compulsory speech. It's like a pledge of allegiance. It's like the Lord's Prayer. It's something you must say at the beginning of a meeting and your personal feelings do not enter into it. You know, Canada is an example that that wonderful story about Václav Havel tells about the green grocer with the sign in his window, workers of the world unite. And what does that sign say? And he said, if you genuinely believed that the workers of the world should you are not currently united and should unite in the future. And if that was your, by all means, put that in your window and um, express yourself, Mr. Green Grocer. But what you're really saying is I am not the kind of person to cause trouble. Why don't you just write that and put that in the window? So given that speech is compelled, given that speech is policed, then it is reasonable for Jews on university campuses in the United States and generally in Canada to think the authorities are accepting this speech, which they would otherwise do something about, and in other cases have done something about. Now, as I say, my preference would be to live in a culture of wider speech. And I, I would live with the anti-Semitic slogans. I mean, I would expect security services to note them and observe the people who said them and then note that as a possible future risk to person and property. But the purely expressive action, I would live with it. But I would only live with it if everybody's living with it. But if I'm going to be the unique bearer of threat and harassment, I, I'm going to have some complaints about that. Uh, we'll come back to that point because we've had those lines of debate play out over the past week on, on the pages of The Hub. But before I get there, I want to ask you a question about what I've observed as the cognitive dissonance among Canadian progressives who define their politics based on equality for racial and sexual minorities and their support for Hamas, which clearly does not. What explains that dissonance in your mind? How can one even begin to understand it? Look, re religious beliefs do not have to be logical. And every religious tradition is full of things that don't line up with uh, other things that the religion believes. And it's true in Judaism, it's true in Christianity. There are four different, there are four gospels that have somewhat different stories. No one ever knows, you know, that people don't notice that the four gospels contradict each other in important points. And if they do, they don't, people who believe in them don't really care. They, they find ways around it. So this is a new faith and, and it, it's believers, it's adherents resolve tensions. But there, what the way it works is, um, it's pretty obvious that there is an internal hierarchy of privilege, uh, that in this language of privilege and non-privilege, there's actually an internal hierarchy. And some groups take precedence over other groups. And groups go in and out of favor. So women, for example, used to be in favor, and now women are out of favor. Jews were a long time ago in favor, and now they're very much out of favor. And then there are contradictions within the, the groups. And we see that play out with, you know, the rights of gays and lesbians contradict the wishes of certain kinds of conservative Muslims and what happens when that plays out. But the people who express these ideas, they they may have tensions and contradictions within what they're for, but they know what they're against. And they're very clear about that. And they have a host of reasons of being against Israel. And they're the same reasons they're against the United States. They're the same reasons they're against the United Kingdom. They're the same reasons that they're against Canada, too. But those, those other societies either inhabit a domain of less threat, like Canada, or they have greater power, like the United States, the United Kingdom. And... 
Gen and so generally can protect themselves. Israel is both in a domain of threat and it is a state of less power. And it is it is hated for the reasons that the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, and Ukraine now too, by the way. And one of the things that that I I try to say, certainly in everything I write, and I probably should say in this podcast, is that to my mind, and we've talked a lot about the Ukraine issue, that these horrible events in Israel remind of the need, the need for even greater solidarity with democratic Ukraine in its its struggle. And it is a remarkable thing that given the difficult history of Ukrainians and Jews in the past, how bonded these two societies have, have become. And the only way it would be more perfect is if right now we had a Ukrainian Christian president of Israel because the Jewish president of Ukraine. I'd vote for him. <laughs> I want to take up your, your point about the extent to which these sentiments and ideas are rooted in opposition, not merely to Israel, but to the West itself. Before we started recording, I mentioned to you, David, that I thought Global Mail columnist Andrew Coyne's column yesterday on these issues was um, the best and most important he's ever written. I want to put a passage to you and, and have you react. He writes, in describing the the disproportionality of the criticism and the attention and the hostility to Israel, he writes, quote, the single-mindedness of some of its critics, the selectivity, the obsessive, unrelenting focus on Israel's faults to the exclusion of any other in the region or world is telling. I don't doubt that some of this, maybe a great deal of it, is rooted in anti-Semitism, but I think the greater part of it, especially as it arises in our own societies, is a kind of self-loathing. They hate Israel because they hate the West, because Israel is part of the West, and they absorb the idea that the West is the root of all evil, unquote. What's your reaction to Andrew's words? Yeah, I would react to that in this way, which is I think Canadians need to begin to understand that these people are not fooling around and the, the people who rationalize murder will end up finding someone who wants to commit the murder. If the rule, if the logic goes like this, it's acceptable to murder Israelis because they live in a settler colonial society. And the corollary is Canada, too, is a settler colonial society. What is their recommendation for how to deal with Canadians? I mean, there, there, there is no argument in defense of Hamas that is not in the mouths of the people who espouse this argument. I mean, I don't believe any of this, but in their mouths, an argument for mass murder inside Canada. Canada, too, is guilty of every crime that Israel is. Um, they make Israel the scapegoat for the sins of Canada. But what logical art, what if when someone if someone were to come and commit such a thing at a Canadian music festival on behalf of the same poisonous ideology, what would be the argument that it was wrong? They don't have it. And you say this often enough, and you will find disturbed people who will believe it and act on it. I mean, we've seen this in the United States with people who advocate various kinds of murderous forms of white supremacism that eventually, you know, it's not like the people in President Trump's circle are ever going to commit it, pick up an AR-15 and shoot up a school. But somebody who listens to them might do it and indeed has done it. And, and the people who are listening to this doctrine that mass murder is an appropriate response to the population who inhabit a so-called settler and so-called colonial society. Then Canada, the United States, all exposed. Australia too. Um, and the thing that's so bizarre about this, of course, is given that all of us are descended from 150 human beings who emigrated uh, out of Africa to, through the Sinai Peninsula about 40,000, 50,000 years ago, we're all settlers and colonialists somewhere. You know, the, <laughs> human beings are not indigenous to anywhere. They're all products of settlement. So if that justifies murder, there are a lot of people who are going to be dead. 
Sign up for the Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. Canada has long told itself a story of the successful integration of immigrants, especially relative to other countries. Based on the developments over the past week, I'm no longer sure that's true. What do you think? Does Canada have a problem in your eyes? And if so, what does it need to do about it? I think Canada is a model of successful integration of, of immigrants, but that does not, the past, past performance is no guarantee of future results, as they say in the financial industry. So how do you do it? So successful integration depends on both a push and a pull. So the, the pull is to say, if you learn the language and learn the ways, they're dazzling. Opportunity. That's why you moved. You have, we, that you can participate. You can you know, rise to the highest levels of business and culture and politics. There is just there is no ceiling too high if you um, absorb the ways of the culture, and so that's uh, that's the pull. But there's also a push, which is there are things that you did at home that you can't do here. You don't want to educate your daughter. That's not an option in Canada. You have to educate your daughter. You want to teach your children that uh, people who believe in other religions are descendants of apes and monkeys. Not acceptable. You want to continue to foment terrorism against your country of origin, uh, whether you are Sikh, whether you're Tamil, whether you're Muslim, Shiite, or Sunni. Not acceptable. You, so you have to. There is, there is both a push and a pull. There are both offers, offers and obligations, rights and responsibilities. And Canada continues to offer some pretty dazzling opportunities. But it, it needs to do a better job enforcing the obligations. Both, and as I say, I'm talking about the society even more than the state. And there are things the state the state does its part. I mean, you cannot withdraw in Canada, unlike Britain, where it does happen. You cannot withdraw your daughters from public education. Um, the state the state will come after you if you try to do that. Canada does not tolerate so-called honor killings and ritual murders of a kind that do people do get away with on the continent of Europe or that proliferate on the continent of Europe. The, the, the state does its part, but there there are cultural aspects as well, that where the culture has to send a message would say, the province of Quebec says it's wrong. Wear, wear whatever religious ornament you want. You want to wear a cross around your neck or a hijab on your head or a yarmulke? Go ahead. That's your that's your right. And think whatever thoughts you want. But they're, they're behaviors toward your fellow citizens. Tolerance is expected. Non-harassment is expected. Non-threat is expected. And what is ideally wished for is that when people are in shock and suffering, that you join them as fellow citizens and not heap worse on their heads. And as you know, there have been some calls in Canada to restrict or even ban rallies in support of Hamas. We published articles this week at The Hub that argued for and against such calls. But it does raise bigger questions about the practice of pluralism and what constraints need to be set by a host society. Years ago, a conservative politician was criticized for putting forward the idea of a so-called value statement, mostly because it was viewed at the time as insincere and cynical. But is something like that necessary or, or should it be considered? Now, there are things that can't come from this. My general view on the Hamas rally question would be, unless they drift into outright incitement or, or advocacy of violence, um, then you 
that 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 is a different issue. But so long as they are mere expressions of odious opinions, go ahead. I think the police should be there. I think it's not the police. I think intel- security services should be there taking note of who attends them and con- considering, as they should at rallies for Sikh and other causes that have been associated with, tam- with terrorism, and just take note uh, that you want to have a photograph, you want to have, have recordings, and you want to ask yourself, not in a police way, not to punish people, but from a public security way, uh, point of view, is this person uh, going to pose this? Or do they, are they behaving in a way that suggests a threat and then they, may, they need further monitoring? Again, not in a punishing way, but in a surveillance and informational way. Canada has a civilian security service that doesn't have law enforcement powers. So I would tend to, but what I do think the, the corollary to that is we need to have a lot more of other, other kinds of speech need to be allowed too. If people want to say, I don't believe what the government is saying about mass graves in Canada, that they should have at least as much right as someone who says, kill the Jews, or I approve, uh, not kill the Jews. Uh, um, I am, uh, I am in solidarity with the people who killed the Jews. Uh, that, that if that, if that statement is a permissible statement in a public square, the statements like men can't become women and the, the mass grave story is false, those should also be permitted in the public square. One more thing on that. Um, but when you talk about integration, I think people also that, that, we, we need to be, keep in mind that the vast majority of people who come from the rest of the world share the moral sentiments. That's already happening. Um, look, most people, most people are kind and good and generous. They're just not very brave. I broadly agree with you, David, that as a kind of civic expression, we ought to aim for something of a kind of maximalist vision of pluralism. But what about institutions themselves. I think, for instance, of political parties. We've talked in the past about diaspora politics and the quite plausible scenario that certain communities could organize themselves such that they could nominate and even elect candidates with perspectives incompatible with the underlying priorities and values and precepts of political parties as institutions. Is there a need for parties and other institutions for that matter, to start to sort of think of themselves as institutions, not merely platforms that are or brands that can be shaped by its caretakers at, at any given moment. Well, I've always been a big advocate of the I think one of the things that Canada has really going for it is this rule that the party leader has to sign nomination papers. That is a fantastic feature of Canadian politics. Um, it protects parties, especially since Can- Canadian poli- parties don't have what the the Labour Party in Britain used to have, which is a, a system of vigilance against what they, they call in Britain entryism. You know, extremists and radicals penetrate a local constituency. So the Labour Party in Britain has always been worried about the uh, penetration by communists and Trotskyists. Um, and it's it's had a big apparatus uh, to keep them out. That apparatus failed with Jeremy Corbyn, um, leading to electoral disaster. And now it's been reasserted. And Labour, Labour in Britain is once again what it always has been, which is a social democratic party with the emphasis on the democratic part. So, yeah, I mean, and this, by the way, doesn't just apply to, like, if you discover that your candidate is a drunk, if, if you discover that your candidate is probably pilfering money, not, you're not sure about enough to give the case to the police, but you're sure enough of it that you don't want him to represent you in party. Yeah, parties need mechanisms to say you're a pilferer, you're a drunk, uh, you're a sexual harasser, and maybe you didn't break any laws. We're not going to punish you from a legal point of view, but you can't represent us in parliament. And by the way, you're a 
ticking time bomb of, of future embarrassment. So no, the answer is no. I think parties should be much more vigilant about that in their own interest, and they should have mechanisms to do that. Pluralism doesn't mean that every institution has to be the same. Pluralism means there have to be zones where people can compete, but the people who are doing the competition should be able to offer a clear proposition to voters, to customers, to potential students to say, you know, we here at such and such a company, this is, this is what we offer. This is what we believe in. You know, we believe, we believe in recyclable products. And that doesn't mean that in the name of pluralism, we also have to offer you a selection of non-recyclable products. You know, our restaurant is vegan, but for our non-vegan customers, we have <laughs> now you have a vegan restaurant. You're allowed to have a vegan menu. You should have a vegan menu. And the, the pluralism is, is the vegan restaurant is next door to, you know, Rancherman House of Beefsteak. I would just say before we move to the final question, it's such an insightful point. And I, I, I think that in a way, that is the problem we're confronting this week, that we've taken pluralism to mean a kind of universalist philosophy or policy that extends not just from the society to a whole, but every institution itself needs to essentially surrender to whatever ideas or voices or perspectives that are held even by the smallest minority. In the name of diversity, we must all be the same. Well said. Let's end where we began. Now that people have been forced to witness anti-Semitism in a way that they may not when we spoke a year ago about the subject, what should happen? How do we move forward from here? You know, this is one of those cases where there's a little something that everybody can do, which is just say, you know, what I'm going to do in solidarity with the victims of this terrible atrocity is show a little more firmness in my personal interactions. I'm going to speak out not all the time. I'm not going to make it my cause, but I'm just going to speak out a little bit. And when I hear something, I'm, I'm going to speak up and in my circle, and maybe not even on social media, but face to face, just I'm going to speak up. And, and if, some, if I catch somebody making a joke about this or saying that people brought it on themselves, or I'm, I'm just going to say, you know what? I heard that and I didn't like it. And you don't have to argue with them. Just I heard it and I didn't like it. Because remember that the same inhibitions you feel, other people feel. And that what happens, what's happened in a lot of our modern world is we have disinhibited all the worst people and imposed inhibitions on all the best. And maybe that balance needs to be recalibrated a little bit. The worst should feel a few more inhibitions and the best should feel somewhat fewer. A ton of insight throughout this conversation. What a terrific place to end. David Frum, I want to thank you for joining me for another episode. I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with David Frum, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews, so please leave us one. And a friendly reminder that you can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada, or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. 